Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go to the Dice Tower Network to find a podcast that's perfect for you. Whether your interests are board games, card games, role-playing games, war games, there's something there for you. With such great podcasts as The Hex Encounter for you war gamers out there, or if you're interested in how games work and the theory behind games, I certainly suggest Ludology. If you're looking to learn how to play a new game, you have to check out the How to Play podcast. The Longview is also generously hosted by 2d6.org. That's www.2d6.org, one of the best sites on the internet for board game reviews and commentary, walkthrough videos, and articles. The Longview is also generously sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. www.gamesurplus.com is your home for online board gaming. Thor and his family are always happy to help you find whatever game you happen to be looking for, whether it's the latest hotness or a hard-to-find import. Gamesurplus.com is known for its fantastic customer service, and I encourage everyone listening to go to Gamesurplus.com for their next purchase. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and today I am very pleased to be joined by Raquel Bites. Uh, Raquel is a user who contacted me through the Jack Vassal Memorial Fund auction. Uh, I had put a guest spot open um, up on the auction list, and Raquel was kind enough to make a generous donation to the Jack Vassal Memorial Fund, and I was just pleased as punch when I heard that she said she wanted to talk about Dominant Species, because that happens to be one of my favorite games, and as it turns out, it's one of hers as well. So, Raquel, I just want to say thank you very much for your donation. Thank you for agreeing to be on the show, and welcome. Thank you. So, uh, I understand you are up there in the snowy north of Canada, and uh, uh, got some snow on the ground. Uh, we were talking before we started recording, and we have a little bit here in Pennsylvania as well. And I think all of us are bracing for the big January freeze down that's going to happen. But I venture to guess it's going to be much worse for you. Yes. Uh, yes, probably. So the game Raquel and I are going to be talking about today has a lot to do with lots of snow and ice. It's the game of Dominant Species. Uh, This is a game that came out in 2010. It was designed by Chad Jensen, who is notable as a war game designer, actually. Um, The game was produced by GMT Games, and it's listed as playing for two to six players, though I would argue that it's not a fantastic two-player experience. Um, The game is, at its heart, a worker placement game. And the theme of the game is that uh, the creatures, the species that are living on the Earth, which are represented by, of course, the ubiquitous little wooden cubes that are familiar to all Euro fans, are spread out all over the world. And there is an impending ice age that is creeping slowly and covering the globe, whether it be a desert terrain or a mountainous terrain or a savanna terrain. And all of the creatures that are living on the planet are trying desperately to adapt, not only to the environment as it is right where they are, but also to the future environment. And so the game is meant to simulate the struggle for survival between different species. 
many different kinds of animals are represented in the game. Uh, these include mammals and reptiles and avians or, or birds, uh, insects and arachnids. And so there's a, a lot of different, and each of them has kind of their own specialty. So there's a lot of variety in how the game plays depending on the species that you select. Um, basically, then the rest of the game is you use these action pawns to select one of a myriad of different choices of actions that will allow you to then do something on the game board, whether it's add more species, whether it's come in conflict with another species where you're trying to eliminate their cubes from a certain terrain. You may also select an action that would allow you to explore more of the world and uncover more terrain and then migrate your species to this new location away from the creeping glaciers. So there's just a ton of things that can be done in this game. Uh, it has been characterized as one of the best games to come out of 2010. Uh, I'm a huge fan of it, and I'm very happy to be talking to Raquel about why this game is so appealing to her as well. So I'd like to open, Raquel, by uh, asking you what was it about this game initially that attracted your attention? Um, well, it was Tom Bass. So when he did his review, he really liked it. And he went over it. And I also like the theme because I'm a biology major. I got a Bachelor of Science in Biology. But unfortunately, my job now that I have, I'm in um, crop insurance, which is not related at all. But um, <laughs> this way I get to... Uh, still technology and um, yeah so that's why the theme really jumped at me too and that's why I wanted to get it fantastic so uh, as a person who is familiar with biology um, how well do you think this game uh, how good of a job does this game do would be a better way of saying it in capturing the theme of the competition between species for survival I think it does it really well I would think that even in high school or something, they could use this game because it really brings it to life, like what fecundity is and what, you know, all the terms that are used in this game, what what it actually is. Like you get to see it physically, like you can read about it and stuff, but if you really get to feel it and to see what it's actually like, and it's it's just really like, yeah, it feels like I'm competing, you know, and it feels true to what you're doing. Like it, the theme really matches it, for sure. Absolutely. I think I agree with you on that. Uh, you know, I don't have a biology degree or anything, but I've always been very interested in evolutionary science and uh, uh, have always enjoyed the writings of uh, Stephen Jay Gould, who is a, a noted writer who uh, used to write an uh, essay every month for Natural History magazine. Uh, his works have been collected into books. And as a side note, I would encourage anybody to uh, look uh, for any of his books. He deals with a lot of subjects, but primarily evolutionary biology. Uh, anyway, I digress on that. Uh, I do think that it kind of does simulate that extremely well. And I think one of the things that I absolutely love about the theme of this game is that there are sort of these two different layers in the game. Um, for example, uh, you may have a species. Let's say you are uh, reptiles. Reptiles kind of naturally are going to want to live in environments where there's a lot of sunshine. And this is because they cannot regulate their own body temperature. So... Uh, the game simulates that 
by placing reptiles initially onto the game board in areas where there is a lot of sunshine. And the resources or environment of an area are represented by these little disks. They're called element disks. And these can be placed on any corner of a hexagon that is on the board. Each hexagon represents a different sort of physical environment, whether it be a jungle, a savanna, a mountainous region, or, or what have you. And so... The reptiles kind of have this natural affinity for sunshine, and so that's kind of the environments that they're going to be best suited to live in, and, and I like that that is true to the natural world. Uh, in addition, though, the game, I think, does a great job of kind of encapsulating the idea of adaptation by allowing a player as one of their actions to take one of these little element discs um, from the supply uh, that is available on the board each turn, and place it on their uh, um, their species map. So that now maybe we have a reptile, but it's also uh, okay in water. So now we have maybe an aquatic kind of snake species that can survive in water as well. And this will allow that species to then move to another part of the world as represented by this map and survive there and compete there. So in addition to that, the, the part that I really like is the fact that if I have a few different species of snakes in a region that has, say, sunlight and water, and another player has a ton of species, but those species only have an affinity or an adaptation for water, my few snakes are actually going to be dominant over, say, that huge bunch of arachnids. The arachnids are more numerous in the environment, but the snakes are more dominant. And I really love how the designer was able to capture this sort of biological fact. Uh, I remember, um, I, I don't know, maybe you'll know, Raquel, uh, there was an author or a, a scientific, I don't know, somebody said something that if an alien was looking down on our planet and was to judge what kind of group of creatures was in charge of the planet based on numbers alone, insects must rule the world because there's more of them than anything else on the planet. And yet, we as human beings, who probably number uh, uh, close to the smallest, actually have the largest kind of domination over our planet because we're able to control our environment and a whole host of other reasons. So I kind of like how the game simulates that. Um, is there anything else uh, from the science end of it, Raquel, that also you feel sort of rings true? I like that it's, it's random as well. You can plan for some things, but then there's other creatures, like you're competitive with other ones, and then that's what real life is like. Like even when you watch those National Geographic movies and everything, you can see how there's competition between each species, uh, different kinds of species, and even though there's like insects, you, do, you don't think that they would um, com could compete with a mammal, but then they can, and I just, I think I like that, and... Uh, I also like that um, all the terms that they use, like they didn't try to change the terms to maybe um, like they're the actual terms that you would use in biology and the way that they use them are actually what they mean. So it's sort of like a teaching tool, too. And that's why I said that it would be good for uh, teaching in a classroom, because it really shows you what um, each of those terms means. And then you see it visually. So I think that's also another science component that is in the game. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, they, 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 you know, Chad Jensen didn't dumb anything down for this, and, and I appreciate that. I, 
I, I always appreciate when, uh, you know, whether it's a television show or a movie or a game or, or anything, when, you know, the, the person who is making it or creating it is assuming that the audience is intelligent. And, and I always appreciate that because sometimes there is something to say for simplifying things. I'm a, I'm a grade school teacher. So there's many times that I have to try to simplify things, but I, I there's a difference between simplifying something and dumbing it down. And uh, I agree. There, there's really nothing that he did here to sort of uh, try to hide the science. You know, he, he's actually seeming to sort of revel in the science and say, hey, look, here it is. Uh, I also want to circle back to a point you made, Raquel, that, that I found interesting. Um, one of the knocks against this game has been randomness. There's a lot of people who don't like, for example, the domination cards, and they feel that they offer these wild swings in the game. And I can tell you from my experience playing it, they can. That there can be huge swings in this game from you know one turn to another, depending on these domination cards. And and a counterpoint has been made of, well, once you know what the cards are and what they do and what to expect, you can kind of plan for it. But as you said, you can't totally plan for it. And I, I you know, kind of almost think that that's thematic in a way. Um, my understanding of evolutionary biology uh, in this sort of current accepted model of punctuated equilibrium is that, you know, there are these long periods of sort of you know, stasis where things are kind of, you know, there might be slight changes or variations, but then there's some large event. There's something that happens, something that really shakes things up in the environment and then allows for all of this diversification and speciation and all this other stuff. So do you find that randomness uh, thematic as well, or do you just think that it keeps the game interesting or does it do both? Um, It does both, but I really like that. I feel that it's thematic for the game. Um, it just, it fits it. That's how life is. It's, it's a little bit random. I mean, you can plan for some things and you can counteract it too. I mean, sometimes you think you're right out of it, but then there are things that you can do and then you can get back in it again. So it's, it's rarely is it ever like you're just out of it, especially if it's like early on, you know, if you get hit really badly, you can still come back again. Absolutely. And, and I think that that also reflects that sort of uh, resiliency of most life on the planet, thankfully, um, uh, you know, because it, it, th- there is always that chance for the comeback. Um, there's also, uh, I think, a, a fantastic inclusion in this game uh, of migration. Uh, migration is one that I think is often sort of underutilized, too. I, I'd be curious what you think of that. Uh, everybody, of course, has the chance to migrate in this game. This is where you can move your species cubes from one tile to another. And when someone kind of selects that sort of explore action, it's called wanderlust, and a new tile is added to the board depicting a new environment... Um, everybody who's kind of on these adjacent tiles has the right to sort of move some of their species to this new tile. And I find that a lot of players do that, but I find that a lot of players don't actually choose the migration action. And migration is an action that you can choose with one of your action pawns that I mentioned at the start, where you can actually move your species all over the board Uh, and if you're the birds you can actually fly you can actually go a much greater distance than the other players as well what do you think of migration Raquel is that something that you found is underutilized in the game or is that just me and my group um 
I like to be the bird, actually, because you get to migrate, like you get to move double, like you said, further away. I just, I think it's, it's such a neat tool to use. I really like that special ability. I've tried some of the other ones, but I feel like my fit is sort of with the birds and how I can migrate and really spread out more. Yeah, that is kind of interesting that you you mentioned that because I find that you know my best fit is usually with either the, the arachnids or the mammals. Those are the two that I'm most comfortable playing. Um, do you find that other people that you've played this game with, do they also seem to kind of gravitate towards a specific species, or you know what what do you think? I mean, in other words, do you think you get better? playing this game if you play the same species do you learn some of the tricks and the feel of it or not i think it's just how you feel like when you're maybe you feel like you have a certain kind of control like when i have migration then i know okay if this happens then i have migration so i'll be okay you know like i can move further away or i can pick my like i like to use migration as part of my uh, strategy so then that's why i pick it that's why i uh pick the birds and then so maybe somebody else who picks a different one they maybe like that particular ability that that animal has and then so then that's a better fit for them so in my game group um no they not everybody sticks to the same one i mean i don't always do birds and i haven't done actually every animal so i don't know how they all feel but um of the ones that i did try uh, the bird still I want to go back to it, but um, I'm still willing to try the other ones too. It's just, you know, because it's nice to see it from a different perspective. It's like, oh, okay. And then also if you try it from different perspectives, then you can see, okay, when a player is playing this animal, then this is what they're thinking. And then when they're playing a different animal, then they're thinking something else. So then it gives you um, a view into their mind, into what they would be thinking of what their strategy will be because of um, what animal they're playing. Yeah, that's very interesting because since each animal does seem to have its own sort of um, advantage, uh, I think the arachnids, for example, get a free attack. Um, the reptiles are more immune to regression, um, you know, things of that nature. It does change your mindset. Uh, I think you're absolutely right when you play a different species. And by doing that, you you do sort of have to adjust your game, I think, in some ways when you play a different uh, species in this game. And as you said, I think a, a really good strategy tip for people who are trying to become good at this game is to do exactly what you suggest, which is maybe play some different species because that will, I think, better enable you to predict what other players will do. Because until you've actually been reptiles, you know, or until you've been mammals, you, you don't really know how you're, maybe how you should approach it. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I mean, you have in your mind of what you're going to do, but you also have to have in your mind what other people are going to do because, you know, you have to have like a plan B or a plan C, you know? So then if you have in your I know, I know what all the other players, what their abilities are, but when I actually play it, then I really know how it is to play it, to know uh, what it's like to actually play that animal. Well, then that way I can uh, be in their mind too and think, okay, this is what they're going to do, and then I can make my strategy because I know then I'll have an idea of what their strategy is, so then I can uh, set my strategy. So then, yeah, the more you play this game, then the more 
you will have an advantage. That's for sure. Like, you know, you can't, obviously if somebody who, even though it is very random, um, if somebody were to come and play with someone who has played it a lot, um, they will probably lose. Yeah, this seems to be a game. Yeah. Yeah. This seems to be a game that does reward repeated play with, improved play you know and and i think that's one of the reasons why i don't pay a lot of attention to the people who say the game is too random because to me the definition of a game that is entirely random is a game in which anybody can win at any time regardless of their experience level and what i found is the same thing that you found which is the more you play this game, you do actually get much better at it. And I would argue it's not just a knowledge of the cards. It's a knowledge of how to counteract things that your opponents are doing. Because while you do have some knowledge of what your opponents are planning on doing, and that's because uh, during the course of sort of this planning phase, everybody puts their action pawns out on the board to sort of signal, okay, I know that the arachnids are going to migrate this turn. I see that they placed an action pawn there. Ah, I see that the reptiles are planning on adapting, and I can see the discs there. Um, one of them is, you know, water, and oh boy, I wonder if he's going to try and move his snakes into my sea region where I've been really nice and dominant and ready to score a lot of points. Hmm, I'm a little worried about that. But the thing is, is you don't know in what order necessary. There are things that can change even the order in which those pawns are removed. Um, and you don't know exactly where people are going to do these actions. And, and that's even more important, I think. So, you know, you might see that someone is going to adapt and you might predict that they're going to take that water element. However, you might end up finding out that no, actually, they're not. Uh, they took a savanna one, and oh boy, you know, they're actually going over here, and I didn't see that coming at all. But if you've played the game enough, I think you do have the ability to make better predictions. I would agree with you there. Um, so, experience you think matters in this game. And uh, what do you think of the kind of analysis paralysis factor of this game? Because this is also something that people have talked about, that this game can actually bring a group to a grinding halt, depending on the people that you're playing with. Have you found that to be true, or do you find that analysis paralysis really doesn't enter into your gameplay and experiences with this game? Uh, I just find everybody's playing, like... If you're going to take 10 minutes, then everybody else takes 10 minutes. Like, it doesn't seem like there's, um, like, one player. Well, I guess that's just my game group. That's that's how we are, that we're, we usually take up at the same time. Yes, we all take longer to pick our action, but then um, it, it's all, all of us are about the same amount of time that we're taking um, to pick our action. Then And also I'm invested, like I want to see, okay, what are they going to pick? And then I'm like, okay, so maybe next round they're going to pick this. So then I want, maybe I'm going to put mine there to stop them picking that. But then maybe somebody else picks it. And so you're always invested, like, oh, what are they going to pick? And then what did they pick? And so I'm always like in it anyways. But yeah, no, I don't, I know there are some games where people can take a long time and then I just feel like, oh, when is it my turn? When is it my turn? But um in, not in this game. I don't feel that at all. I just I just wait until it's my turn and then I then I go and yeah. it's fine that way. I don't I don't see it as a negative for me, anyways. 
Okay. So um, one of the things that, that I kind of found with that, I was curious what you would say about that because I kind of find with this game that even when I'm playing with players that take a while to make their selections or, or what have you, it almost doesn't bother me because everything that every player does on their turn in this game has a direct impact on you. Yeah. Would, would yeah. you say that's true? That's true. Yeah. Like, I'm like, oh no, he picked that up because he picked like, cause you pick one action at a time. You don't pick all of your actions at a time. So then he picked that one action. Then I'm like, oh, he's going to pick this action. And then he doesn't pick that action. And it was like, an action that I was going to take, but I'm like, oh, he's not going to pick that action. And then he does. And then I'm like, okay, so what am I going to do now? So yeah, I'm always like, what's going to happen? You're always in it. You're, you're, it doesn't feel like it's downtime. Like it would in other games, because it's, it's always important for everybody what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's that level of sort of engagement that makes it seem like there really isn't that much downtime in this game when you play it. So, you know, I, I've heard that a lot about this game, but I actually haven't experienced it really myself. And it doesn't sound like you have either. So, uh, you know, maybe that's something that is a way to beat analysis paralysis is, is the, if you can design a game in which all players are completely invested in what everybody else is doing, it really doesn't seem to matter. Um, you know, I find this, uh, you know, kind of this game is very much the opposite of, you know, the multiplayer solitaire style of game. Um, mm-hmm. For example, um, I recently was uh, fortunate enough to uh, get a copy of uh, Suburbia. And Suburbia is a tile-laying game where you're kind of building, uh, you know, sort of out from this sort of city into this, uh, you know, sort of suburban region. And you're trying to kind of manage your income and your reputation and your resources and whatnot and come up with different synergies between the tiles you place. And there, there are actually tiles in that game that are designed to interact with the other players' boards. It's called their burrows that, that they're building. Um, but I find that they're kind of few and far between. And so really, most of the time, I kind of feel like I have almost no interest in what anybody else is doing. And therefore, when it's their turn and they're kind of trying to carefully figure out, well, what would be best for me and looking at their boards, I'm bored. You know, I'm, I'm just kind of sitting there waiting and saying, okay, well, I know what I want to do. And maybe someone will pick that tile, but, you know, whatever. And I just kind of am sitting there. In Dominant Species, there's such a high level of interaction, um, not just in this action selection mechanic that you and I are talking about, but in the actual game itself. There's actually direct conflict, and you're trying to kind of keep your eyes on the board state and trying to figure out and interpret the selection of the actions. Okay, so this person, like you, you select migration. So if I'm playing against you, I'm looking at all of your pieces on the board and saying, where is she going? And what can I do about it if she goes where I think she's going to go? But at the same time, as you said, it's not a perfect information game. I know you're moving, but I don't know exactly where. And so you can't plan for everything, but you can try to predict. And so I find that this really keeps the game very engaging for all of the players. It really is, to me, um, what I would call a standing game. This is one of those games where everybody starts sitting at the table, but usually about midway to three-quarters of the way through the game, most players are standing. 
They're just standing there with their arms crossed, staring intently at that board and trying to think about what to do. And um, it, it just ends up being this incredibly engrossing experience. Um, do you find that this is a standard? Do you know what I mean by a standing game? Yeah, just like you're absorbed in it. Like you even because I don't after I've played it, then I know that I've played it for like four hours or I've played it for five hours. But to me, it wasn't like how many hours I played it. it was like I felt and then I'm like, oh, I should, maybe next time I'm going to try this. And that's one of those games that after you play it, you want to talk about it. And and that to me is one of the best things about a game is after you're done, you still want to talk about it. Yeah, I would yeah, agree. It's, just, it's, it's so absorbing. You're just in it and, and you forget about other things and you're just right in it. And it's that's why it's so, such a great game. Yeah, I, I would agree. It is very engrossing and very absorbing. And it's, it's one of those games where time does seem to slip away from you. You don't really notice uh, how much time has passed until you look up at the clock at the end. It is also a game. It's interesting what you said there. I'm gonna, I, I want to pick up on that. The game does kind of tell a story. Um, and it's, it's very interesting to me that it does this because at its heart, it, it is very abstracted. I mean, we are talking about little wooden cubes and little wooden cylinders and a little mat with a little picture of an animal on it. And yet the game ends up telling this amazing kind of narrative story. Um, and each player's story is often different. And that's one of the things I really like about it. Um, you know, I remember specific games that I played when I was on the brink of complete extinction and then, you know, migrated to the tundra and turtled there for a little while and then made this huge comeback in the late game by becoming, you know, nocturnal and gaining an extra action pawn. And so, you know, like there's this kind of story that you kind of experience through the game, at least in my experience. And then, like you said, all the other players are having that same thing. It's not the same as yours. They're having their own story. And then when you're done, you really do seem to want to talk about it. Um, And I find that that is one of the hallmarks of a really good game. If the game generates a lot of conversation when you're done with it, there must be something to it. Um, I often find, too, that games that I really feel are, are exceptional are games that I think about long after the event. Are there still games of Dominant Species that stick in your head days later, you know, that, that you're still thinking about? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's, you know, I play with my brother a lot, and um, I, we, we'll talk about it, and even, you know, months later, oh, you know, when this happened, and... Yeah, for sure. So uh, while we're talking about, you said you play a lot with your brother. I'm going to pick up on that. Um, how? What do you feel is the best player count for this game? Because it's interesting, you said you play a lot with your brother, and I actually started off the show saying, I don't think this is a particularly great game for two players. Um, what have you found, in your opinion, is the best number of players for this game? And then can you tell us why? Um, I like uh, four players is really good. Uh, the reason that I play with my brother a lot is that um, I can't always get four players to play it. So, uh, but it's still, I mean, it's not the optimal game, but I still get to learn and I still get to see what it's like. I mean, it's just sort of like going back and forth. So it's not, 
it's not as good. You're you're right. It's not really a two-player game, but since I like it so much and I just like the theme and I like the way it plays, I still want to play it. And my brother really likes it too. So then uh, we play it even though it's not the optimal number. But uh, my husband sometimes will play it too. So then we'll have a three-player game and then occasionally we'll be able to um, go like to a convention or something and then play it with more players. So you said you feel that four players is kind of the the sweet spot. Is there any particular reason you like it with that player count, or is it just a feel, or what do you think? Um, actually, that was the most that I've done it with. So I don't. Maybe with six players, um, it would be good too, or five. I'm not sure, but the most I've done it with has been four. So that. Out of the, the scenarios that I've played, I've done two, three, and four, and then four has been the best. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I would probably agree with you for the most part uh, that four is probably my favorite. Um, six is just crazy. I, you know, if you, <laughs> if you talk about trying to look at the board state and figure out and make predictions about what you think is going to happen, if you think that's hard with three or four, with six, it's just incredibly difficult. Um, you know, and it's not to say that it's, it's unpleasant, but it actually raises the level of brain burn to you know, the point where, you know, you, you, you might catch on fire. Whereas, <laughs> you know, a four and a five player game, I, I find are really kind of the sweet spots for me. And, and personally, I like four the best. So I, I agree with you on that. And, and I think the reason I like four the best is that there is, um, competition all over the board. You know, when you play two-player and three-player, um, there is the possibility, depending on who you're playing with, to kind of go off into your corner and do your own thing and explore down into a certain region and kind of, you know, just take a section of the, a slice of the world and take it as your own. Um, when you're playing with four players, I find that it's much more difficult to do that. And you're kind of forced to deal with each other a lot more than in a three-player game or a two-player game. So in a five- and a six-player game, though, it's so intense and it's so tight and there's so much competition. Uh, even when the board reaches its kind of you know maximum size or, or, or grows close to that, um, that, that it can become very difficult to sort of uh, come up with a long-term strategy. So while I think the game is tactical... I also think that I agree with you that it is strategic. You can make long-term plans. I just find personally that the more players there are, it's almost like this inverse kind of relationship. The more players, the harder it is to formulate long-term strategy. Uh, The the fewer players, especially, you know, then, then you really can try to actually actively go down a path and try to implement a very specific strategy in order to try to win. Um, would you agree with that? Like, do, do you find that maybe it's too wide open with two and, and better? Is that, or, or is there another reason? Uh, well, my brother and I were very, like, we'll go after each other all the time. Like, even when there's three people playing or four people playing, like, we, we always like to go after each other a lot. Uh, so I would, I could see that you could take a, an area and make it your own. But, um, since he's, we're always like in so much competition against each other, whenever we play like any game where there is competition, then, um, I don't see that as much. 
So then uh, it sounds like, you know, because of your style and kind of personality as gamers, um, you wouldn't have that problem. Whereas, you know, when I play, uh, my primary gaming partner is, is still my wife, uh, although my kids are kind of creeping up there. They're, they're, they're uh, becoming uh, much more primary gaming partners as they get older. But my wife is very non-confrontational. So, uh, you know, and, and one of the other players in our group is also very non-confrontational. So uh, perhaps I'm wrong um, and, and, you know, it really isn't uh, any less kind of interactive at the lower player counts. It's just that the style of the, of, of the people that you're playing with seems to have an impact. Uh, you find that it's still tight and tense and competitive even with the three-player and the two-player is what it sounds like you're saying, yes? Yeah, yeah. I mean... It's still two player. I mean, it's just two people. It's really like even three is a little is better than two. Two is pretty tough, but um, we still get to get a feel of it, and you still get to play. So it's still okay. But um, yeah, no, I I definitely don't think that two players ideal at all. <laughs> and um, and even though uh, the three players are is okay, yeah, four player was was the best game that I've played. So far, anyways. Now, yeah. when you play two-player, do you play with the two species apiece, or do you just do head-to-head, one-against-one? Uh, we usually just do one-against-one. I think we've tried it once with um, two each, um, but we didn't get to finish that game. But, uh, yeah, no, you just one-against-one. Yeah, I'm not a real big fan of the of the playing two each either. Um, I, I almost rather would just do the head to head one against one. I you know I, I just kind of feel that trying to manage two species uh, on the board and it is is just maybe a little bit much for me, and it it also makes it harder for me. I guess even though it sounds weird to say emotionally to connect with what I'm doing when my attention is so divided between two different things. And so I'm not a real big fan of, of playing two species at the same time. Uh, and, and I think I would rather do what you do. I'd be curious what, you know, maybe people who listen to the podcast um, do when they play dominant species with only two, if there's any sort of tips. Um, there, there's also been uh, some variants kind of posted, Raquel, about uh, the game uh, to cut down maybe on the game length and to eliminate that sort of perfect knowledge of cards uh, by some people have suggested removing a certain number of cards from the game at the start of the game to sort of shorten it and also randomize it a little bit. Have you tried that? And if so, what's been your experience? And if you haven't, is you know, is there a reason? You know, do you object to that in some way? What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I haven't tried it. Um, like. I guess if it was a problem that it was taking too long and I just, I didn't like that, then, then I would try it. But for me, that's not my experience. I don't feel that it's taking too long. Like I said, I get caught up in it and it, to me, it doesn't seem like it's taking a very long time. So I'm okay with uh, the amount of time it takes. So I don't see that that's really necessary for me. Yeah, it's an interesting trade-off, I think, that, that's being suggested by that. Uh, you know, I, I haven't done that either. Well, no, I'm sorry, I'm lying. Uh, I've, I've done that once. Um, and, and, and it was because of what you said. It was a time consideration because the game does take a considerable amount of time to play, uh, especially, you know, the more people you yeah. have playing. Um, but in a way, I kind of felt like the randomization um, – 
kind of hurt my ability to plan long term. And it's kind of interesting to me that so much of the, the sort of pushback on this game has been about the domination cards that can be so incredibly powerful. Um, well, they have an, they have another version. I think it's right in the rule book where you don't use the domination cards. Like what it's written on them, they you just use them as like a time factor, right? And so then you don't use them and. I did not like that at all. <laughs> no, no, neither do yeah. I. Because that, that takes that randomness that you were speaking out of the game. And, and the world is messy. Uh, the natural world is unpredictable. You never know what's going to happen for, for sure or with any large degree of certainty. So I think that those cards are essential to the game. I, I agree with you there. Um, and, and I think that when you take them out, it does sort of then eliminate some of my kind of long-term planning because you know there there are certain times when I'm playing when I'm looking for a specific card and I'm waiting for that card and when it comes up you know I've actually manipulated myself in the turn order um you can actually use one of your action pawns to change the turn order in this game and sort of creep your way up uh this this turn order chart and so there are times when I'm looking for a very specific card and, you know, I, I'm kind of planning for it. And I find that the, the notion of taking some cards randomly out of the game would sort of negate that kind of long-term planning that you can do in Dominant Species. Um, how much of your strategy, Raquel, revolves around those Domination cards? Uh, you know, what, what would you say to that? I, I don't have them all memorized, but I do know... Um, some of them that I like to use. So I do try to plan for them. So yeah, yeah. What are the ones you like to use? Uh, Blight. <laughs> oh, that's um, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell people what Blight does uh, in case they don't know that card? Okay, um, so it removes all the elements except for one. And uh, like I said, I like to play the bird so then I'll, I can migrate um, as far away. And so that's a nice one to use i just i like the really mean ones i don't know what all their names are but i like to use the mean ones it's like oh no you know that i like to hear that from the players when i for which one i pick very nice yeah especially if you can fly away from all the devastation that you just created um that that's kind of a fantastic way uh to enjoy that uh yeah it, that's a very brutal card um you know and again this is, you know, one of the things that people have talked about that they don't like about the game is that how powerful that card is. You've now taken one hex, one section of the world, and basically just completely obliterated it. And you do so uh, in a very calculating fashion because either you're like Raquel, planning on just leaving it flying away, saying bye-bye as everybody dies, or you're planning on removing all of the element discs except for the one that you have. So like going back to my earlier example of reptiles, uh, reptiles like sun. So if I leave that sun element disc that might be on that tile and take everything else off, well, if the other species that are on that tile don't have sun and they didn't select migrate, they're going to die. So it, it can be an incredibly brutal and effective tool um, in order to change the, the, the state of the, of the board and it, it can really produce some large point swings because if later on you score that tile, well now you're the last one left standing and you're going to get 
all of the points for that. So if, you know, in the example I'm giving, if it's a sunny ocean, a sunny sea space, you're going to get, I believe it's like nine points um, for being, uh, you know, in, in domination there, in majority. Everybody else is, is going to die and you're going to go extinct and you're going to be the one left standing. So um, this is something that can be very, very effective in the game and is part of that long-term planning that I'm talking about. So, you know, you look for that blight card. Uh, I look for the card, I'm trying to remember what it's called, the one that allows you to get the extra action pawn. Because- yeah, well, there, I think there's two of them. Uh, I think there's one that uh, there is one that just gives you an extra action pawn. There's also another card that gives you and every and everybody else, everybody else or everybody below who's you. above you on the food chain. Is something. it above you or below you? I thought oh, it was oh, below. Okay. You. Oh, I think it's everybody below, below yeah. you on the food chain gets yeah. a um, extra action pawn. And so this can be a card that you know I look for if I'm low in the food chain order. Uh, that works out fantastically for me. I want that card because then I'm going to get the extra action pawn, but nobody else is. Whereas if I'm at the top of the food chain, that changes my mindset completely about that because then I'm not really gaining anything. I am gaining the ability to have an extra action, but so is everybody else. So, you know, these cards, while they're very powerful and drive, at least to my mind, a large amount of strategy in the game, um, everybody kind of gets to see them. They're not hidden. And, you know, I, I think you made a very important point, which is that an experienced player is going to know how to utilize those to their best advantage and, you know, uh, really wreak some havoc with them and create a much better situation for themselves either later that round, you know, uh, after you take your, your uh, domination card and, and when you're scoring or perhaps in future rounds as well. Um, are there any particular strategies or or ideas, just kind of general game ideas, Raquel, that you have found that are particularly effective for you? I just I like to play all, like I said, like I'm trying to make my way to work um, to play all of the different animals um, to see the point of view of all of that. Um, but I don't really have a specific strategy, no. Okay, so you, you like keeping your options open and, and being flexible when it comes to that. Um, you know, I, I find that it is very hard to kind of um, have a general strategy in this game uh, because the game is different each and every time. And I think that's one of the great strengths of the game. Um, you know, there are some things that, you know, I kind of try to keep in mind and will try to sort of implement, but at the same time, um, it can be very difficult to do it. Uh, so let me give an example. I often find that being second place in three spots is better than being in first place in one. And I think that sometimes players lose sight of this. They lose sight of the fact that when a tile is scored, um, if you can kind of slip below the radar and sort of leech points when other people score their tiles that can be a very effective long-term strategy. Sort of have your fingers in a lot of different areas. And, and, and in this way, you're never entirely shut out. Um, as an example, you know, when I see a species move into a new region, if I'm able to survive in that region at all, I will move in there. Simply because I know if somebody moves into, say, a wetland region or a sea region, in, in the game, these are two of the more valuable regions when it comes to scoring points. 
I know that if I don't get in there or somebody else doesn't get in there, I can guarantee that person is going to try and score that tile because they're going to get all the points and no one's going to get anything. And so as a general strategy, I kind of try to, to have myself spread out quite a bit. I also find too in, in general, and this is something that I've been doing recently when I play the game, I, I try not to forget the Tundra regions because the Tundra regions, while they don't really score you a lot of points during mm-hmm. the game, they're hugely important at the end of the game and can really swing the final results of the game based on that last kind of final Tundra scoring. Um, how do you find, I mean, you know, do you find the Tundra is important or is that something that you kind of have been able to sort of successfully ignore and just fly away from? Um, no, yeah, the Tundra, when I was first playing the game, I thought, oh, the Tundra, like, why would you even try to go there? And then at the end, <laughs> I say, okay, that's what it does. So, no, it's important. I don't think you can um, not, you can just leave it alone. It's definitely important. And actually at the end, uh, near the end of stuff, I try to um, put in, fly my birds in and um, go in for the tundra. Yeah. So you try to do a late game swoop, as it were, and and get in there and steal some points, yeah? Yeah. And see, that's that's just fantastic because that's utilizing the advantage of your species at an opportune moment. And, and I find that so much of this game is all about that. Uh, mammals, if I'm remembering correctly, Raquel, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because I actually haven't played it in a couple of months because it's such a huge game. I don't yeah. get to play it as often as I would like. Uh, mammals, I believe, their, their kind of special ability is uh, um, uh, uh, they win ties, uh, don't they? Yeah, because they're the highest on the food chain, so they win. Um, they would win every time. Yeah, right. And you know, when I've played mammals, I've really tried to use that to my advantage. Uh, you know, again, remembering that you know what Raquel and I are talking about is scoring points for the tiles. And when you score points for a tile, um, what's really important there is the number of species that you have on the board. Um, which is different from whether or not you're dominant on that tile because you're better adapted to uh, uh, survive and live in that environment, yes? Yes. So Yeah, well, that's what I like about that uh, whole part of it is that um, you can get dominance on it, so then is that when you get the card, mm-hmm. but the points are how many of the cubes are on it. So there's the two things that because i like sometimes you just want to concentrate on one thing okay i just want to have dominance but no you can't just let that go you also have to have um your species there too for the points absolutely and and there's also i think it's important to know that there is a limited number of species and so there have been times in this game when I have wanted to select one of the actions is speciation, and this is where you can put new cubes out on the board. And there have been times when, you know, if it's been a particularly brutal kind of confrontational game, there have been times when my actual uh, sort of pool of uh, different species, you know, which are represented by our wooden cubes, uh, is actually running low and to the point where I can't put out as many as I would like to. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, you know, we've talked a lot about this game, uh, you know, and all of the things that we like. 
you and I are, are both kind of, you know, I think everyone listening would, would understand that we're both fans of this game. Uh, are there any things about it, though, uh, Raquel, that you don't like? Or, or are there any things that you wish were different about the game? And if so, what would those be? Um, no, I, I like the game. I mean, although I get into it and I don't feel the time is passing, I mean, I have children and I have responsibilities, so I can't play it all the time. So um, it would be nicer if there was like a shorter version, but then that would probably not be the same game either. Like, like they've tried to do, um, it just, it doesn't work. So I don't know. There's, there's really no answer for it. Um, and then I just, I wish that I had more people to play it with, (laughs) (laughs) but that's not the game's fault. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, And, you know, I, I think I would agree with you on this point. It's very hard for me to identify anything about this game that I don't like other than the playtime. And I, you know, the thing about the playtime is it's, it's kind of vital, I think, to me to play the game at its full length because then these sort of natural ebbs and flows and these swings and points that happen during the game, there, there's like time to ride those waves out. And I yeah. feel that if the game were shorter you would have many more sort of, you know, surprise, you know, the game's over and, you know, I picked this card which did this and I win, you know, and then you'd be like, oh man, you know, I just invested two hours, uh, say, of my life in this game and it ended uh, with this weird sort of lucky random turn of events and, you know, I I have a feeling it would feel very unsatisfying if the game wasn't long enough for me to have those stories that I can tell of epic comebacks. Um, Because the game length the way it is now, I agree with you, you said earlier on, you know, you're never really completely out of it, especially if, if you suffer a setback early in the game. There's always time for you to have that amazing comeback. And I think if you shorten the game, which is what everybody seems to want to do, that would end up making the game actually feel as random as people accuse it of being does that make any sense yeah and i just think i i think i wouldn't have like want to talk about it as much at the end because it would feel like oh okay it just finished but uh if you've played the full game then you feel like you've like you said like there's a story that you can tell and of what happened and even i've even taken a picture of the board at the end of the game you know <laughs> and if you made it shorter it just it wouldn't be the same it really they, they could I mean, like they, they've tried to make it shorter and it can't be done. And but so that's OK. But sometimes it's hard to play at that. It because is. I have other things to do, but, you it know, is. like responsibilities and stuff. But that's what it is. And it's, it's OK. Yeah. You know, and, and I would agree. I mean, I, I think I would I still remember the few games of civilization um, and the one game of advanced civilization that I've played. Because they were so long, they were so epic, you know, six, seven, eight hours of playing one game. But that being said, I've played those games four times in my life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's because of the playtime. And yet everyone has been trying to find a way to shorten civilization, as far as I can see, for as long as I've been paying attention to this hobby. 
um, you know, looking for how can you play Civilization in a reasonable amount of time. And, you know, there have been some fantastic games, I think, that have come out of that quest. Uh, games like Through the Ages and games like, um, you know, Clash of Cultures more recently. Um, but, you know, the, the, the bottom line is everyone's still looking for that experience. And I, I don't think you can have that experience without investing that amount of time. And I think Dominant Species is one of those games. I, yeah. I, I agree with you. If you shorten it, it just it isn't Dominant Species anymore. It's like Dominant Species Light or Dominant Species Express. And you know, if you're okay with that, that's great. But um, you know, and, and I'm I not... guess like maybe they could come up with something that was a shorter amount of time. But it, I don't think I couldn't call it Dominant Species. Like maybe they call it like some other name or something because it wouldn't be the same game and I wouldn't get the same feelings that I do when I'm playing the game and it wouldn't feel it it wouldn't be the same game so I, I can't say that you could have the same name or you'd have to yeah it's... yeah and I think part of that has to do with going back to what you started the show talking about Raquel which is science you know, and, and, and these kinds of things that are being depicted by this game, you know, we're, we're almost talking, we're not talking deep time here. We're not talking geological time frames of, you know, millions or billions of years, but we're not talking, you know, just a thousand years either. I mean, we're not talking just a, a short period of time. We're talking about a long period of time here. And the game kind of needs to have the time to reflect that amount of time. I know I've used the word time now about six times in the past 30 <laughs> seconds, but, uh, it, you know, do you, do you kind of get what I mean there? Like, if, if you're trying to model this epic, long, historic kind of uh, struggle for survival, it's very hard to do that in a short period of time because then there's nothing epic about it. It's, it's, yeah. it's a snapshot. It's not, yeah. it's not the full story, Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it would if they made it a shorter game, then it wouldn't be all of all that it is. It would be like a part of it that they would take and they would make it. It wouldn't be the same thing. Yeah. If you want the full game, then you got to put in the full time. That's just how it is. Yeah. And, and I, I think you and I agree on that point, you know, and this is why I think also, you know, I brought up civilization games and this is why I, I think Vlada Shavadl's, uh Through the Ages is probably... I think the one that has come the closest for me, you know, because you do have this sort of epic sweep to the game, you know, through age one and age two and age three, you know, you start off the game, you know, just kind of trying to learn how to farm. And by the end of the game, you know, you're looking at flight and, and space travel and all of these amazing things in the modern age, railroads and all this kind of stuff that, that pop up. And so through the course of that game, you get that epic feel. Interestingly enough, though, you know, through the ages, unless you play it constantly and online with people who have played it so much that they know exactly what they want to do when they see that set of cards, um, it, that, that game will still take you three to four hours easily. So, you know, again, it's, it's that time that seems to be required to tell these epic stories. And I think Dominant Species needs the time frame that it does in order to do that. Um, I'd like to circle back to one other thing that you talked about. You know, you said you took a picture of the board uh, <laughs> at the end of the game, right? And, yes. And, and uh, you know, I, I have never done that. But I think I'm going to because uh, of exactly what you and I talked about before, which is, 
you know, sometimes you think back on these games and you have these stories. And, you know, when you take a snapshot of the board, you know, I think it would really even jog my memory even more and be like, oh, yeah, remember this game where, you know, you were kind of over here and then we swooped over onto the tundra at the last second with our birds, you know. And so it really kind of would remind you of those great kind of games, those epic games that you had played. Um, But while we're talking about taking a picture of the board, where do you come down on the whole art thing? Because, you know, when the first edition came out, I bought it immediately because of the theme. Like you, I was interested in the theme. Um, I didn't even really know who Chad Jensen was. Um, I found out later who he was as a you know a fantastic war game designer, but you know I, I didn't really know who he was. I just knew it was a game about evolution, and I was like, cool, you know, I, I, I'm into that. Um, and when I got it and played it, I had absolutely no problems with it, and was kind of surprised by the amount of kind of negative comments that were being made about how the board looked and the way the pieces were and, um, you know, and, and they actually, GMT went through this whole process of a redesign and now there's like new art and a new board and new art for the cards. Where do you come down on all of this, Raquel? What did you think? Uh, yeah, I don't like the new one. I like the old one. I got the second edition. I, I didn't know about the game until the second edition and then uh, once I heard there was a third edition, I thought, okay, I'll look at it. And I looked at the pictures, and I just I didn't like it. It's just the cards are very dark, and I like to have the card where you can read it, easily read it. And I like that the le- the board and the tiles and everything is a lighter color because then the cubes and uh, the domination cones, they like... Uh, they stand out more so then you can get a snapshot okay oh that's what's going on you know i would think i mean i've never seen the actual i've only seen the pictures of it but to me it just seems like it's more busy and it doesn't make it as easy for me to see what's going on so i don't uh like it at all (laughs) yeah you know i i think i agree with you there and i think you hit it right on the head when you said um it, it it makes it more difficult to read the board, you know, to see what's going on. And, and you know, I, I totally agree with that because the game is so amazingly complicated, not in its rules, not in the mechanics of the game. It, it's not that hard of a game to teach, and it's not that hard of a game to play. The, the complexity in the game is based on what's actually happening on the board. And so... I, I Like you, I like the sort of simple, clean design that makes it very easy for me to assess that, to, to look and see just at a glance, you know, where are areas that I feel secure, where are areas that I feel vulnerable, and where are areas that I feel, you know, there are opportunities for me in the game. And then at well, the same time, uh, yeah, go uh, ahead. Uh, sorry, um, just like part of the rules is that you have to always be able to say if you're dominant in a certain area, you would put in your cone or whatever. So then if it's harder to read that, then um, you might not place it there to show that you're dominant. So that's important too for that part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And the rules actually say if you miss it, oh, well for you. Um, Yeah. and And I think it also says that if somebody else sees it and they say something, then they shouldn't say it. Right. It's like, it's always up to you to, um, be able to figure that out. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I find, like you, that the the simpler, kind of cleaner, more muted colors 
um, make it much easier for me. You know, you said it better than uh, I, I haven't seen this before, but you're absolutely right that the colors of the cubes stand out. They pop more from that kind of more muted, faded kind of background than they do from the new style where, you know, everything is much darker. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's harder for me. And maybe it's just because I'm getting older, but it's harder <laughs> for me to see things and, and pick those things out. Um, I love fantastic art and games. You know, I mean, you look at Michael Menzel's work on, you know, Cuba or Stone Age. It's like, oh, you know, this stuff is gorgeous. But there are some games where less is more. And, and, and this is one where I think yeah. because of the complexity of the game and, and the requirements for reading the board, um, you really have to keep it simple and clean. And, and I think that's why I prefer the original art as well. So, well, I'm glad we were able to put that to rest because that's been all over the internets for a long time now. Well, even the text on the cards are smaller. I mean, you still usually have to get up to see it, but it's easier to read it because, you know, you want to know what's there, but then you don't want to like look like you're going there. And so you, it's, it's just better to have it simple though. I like games that have, like, um, what's that one? There's a dungeon one. Oh, I don't remember what it's called. Um, but, um, you know, I like artwork in games. But for that style of this game, it's just so much better to have it simple and clean. Absolutely. So, you know, right now, Dominant Species is ranked very highly uh, on Board Game Geek. Um and there, there's been a, a, a lot of to-do in a couple of threads that I've been very amused by, um, without calling anybody out, by, by people who kind of predicted that this game was going to be a flash in the pan, uh, it was not going to have longevity, uh, it was not going to be around. Um, you know, I, I think that based on everything that has happened with this game and the longevity and the popularity that it's already enjoyed... Um, you know, you look at Dominant Species on BGG, and it's it's currently ranked number 18. Um, and, you know, and, and this is a game that is surviving the cult of the new, where, you know, every new kind of, of game that comes out seems like it instantly races into the top 50 uh, or beyond. Uh, what do you think, if you had to say one thing, Raquel, that would account for why this game, as long as it is, you know... As as dense as it is, as heavy as it is, why is this game still so popular? I think it's just because of the interaction and because you're you're always interested in what everybody's doing. I think even though it's long, um, you know you are you're always interested in what's going on. So then it doesn't make it feel as long. So even people who don't like analysis paralysis, um, they might even take a bit longer. So then if somebody else takes a bit longer, then it doesn't seem as bad. You know, I I think I I would have to agree with you there. It's that level of engagement and the level of interaction, I think, that's very, very different. And I I wish that I could talk to uh, the designer, Chad Jensen, because, you know, some people have written that, you know, they think that maybe only a war game designer could have made this interactive of a Euro. And I, I kind of wonder, you know, how much he thought about his own wargaming uh, background in design when he was making this game. Because this game is very confrontational. It is very interactive. And in some ways, it, it feels almost like a war game. Uh, I'm not a huge war gamer, but I have played some. 
And it, it kind of feels like a war game to me. And I think that might be something that really sets it apart from the usual kind of, of Euro games that uh, you know many of us have kind of come to know and love. Um, where do you fall on this interaction kind of scale? Are you a person that likes more interaction or are you a person that kind of uh, likes these kind of, you know, efficiency engine building games and, um, you know, converting games where, you know, like, I don't know, like say, uh, or in Labora where I'm going to get this and turn it into that and then turn it into this. Where, where do you fall on the gamer spectrum, Raquel? Um, I actually, I like uh, a little bit of everything. Sometimes I feel like I want to do like confrontational one. And then sometimes um, I feel like I can play Agricola. I mean, I guess there's a little bit of uh, when you place where you're going to place and stuff. But um, that one's nowhere the same as uh, Dominant Species. Um, you know, and it also depends on who I'm playing with. Like I play with my mom too and stuff and and. And then there's other people when I do go like uh, once a month to a game group and then there's some people there that uh, aren't as confrontational. So then that's okay. You know, we just play a different kind of game and I'm still just, I'm still happy uh, um, to play those too. Uh, But really like when I, when I really get absorbed and into the game, it's yeah, when you're really confrontational, but the other one, it's still fun. It's like a different kind of fun, not, not as a deep fun, but it's still fun. Okay. So you, you are a, a gamer who enjoys that kind of direct kind of confrontation, but not exclusively. So, you know, and, and I think that your experience is very similar to a lot of other gamers' experience, which is, you know, depending on the situation and who you're playing with, there's, you know, lots of games that can be enjoyable and, and be fun. And I, I, the reason I'm bringing this up is, is because I think sometimes there's this idea out there that, you know, a game that has confrontation uh, is only going to be enjoyable to people who like confrontation. And, you know, like I started talking about earlier, you know, my wife is, as my primary gaming partner, she doesn't really like confrontation, but she likes dominant species. She enjoys playing the game. And I think that's another kind of strength of the game in that it is flexible enough that there is kind of something there for everyone. And I have seen games where you know you have a couple of people like maybe you and I who are a little more in your face a little more confrontational ready to take that competition spot and you know start eating each other's animals um and and removing them from the board and I I've I've played games like that where there's a couple confrontational players and then maybe one or two non-confrontational players and I think it's a strength of the game that I've seen both of those styles of gamers win this game you know, it, it doesn't always go to the person who's most confrontational. Um, and, and I think that that's another strength of this game that, you know, is not always apparent in other games. You know, when you have uh, a heavy resource kind of conversion game or you have a game uh, that is a efficiency engine building game, if your mind doesn't work that way, um, you might get better with repeated plays, but you're probably never going to be as good or, or maybe enjoy that game as much as someone else whose brain is kind of wired for that. And that's one of the things I like about Dominant Species is it's very it's a very plastic game. You know, it can it can really kind of uh, adapt itself to multiple styles of play. Um, so. You know, I think we've hit most of the major things in this game that, you know, would would explain why it's got such longevity and why it's enjoyed so much success. 
Um, is there anything that you would hope for in the future for this game? Are you, you know, like I think about expansions, Raquel, and it seems like there's an expansion for every game. And, you know, there's no expansions for dominant species. Would you welcome something like that? Would you be looking for something like that? Or, again, do you think the game is just fine as is? Leave it alone and walk away. It's good uh, the way it is. But um, I would trust uh, Chad Jensen. I mean, he made the game. And if he made an expansion for it, then I'm sure that it will work with it. You know, maybe add some other different cards. I don't know. But um, I could see it. I would probably get it even well, because I like the game so much, I would get any expansion that would come out anyways. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, I, I wouldn't mind if there was. And if there never is one, then I wouldn't be disappointed with it either. I'm always going to be happy with my game. So, so you know, when all is said and done, I, I think, you know, we both agree that this game is is one of the better designs out there. It's a game that I know I really enjoy and will continue to enjoy for years. I mean... You know, people always ask this question, Raquel, about like, you know, you see it on Board Game Geek all the time. Like, you know, if you were on a desert island, what 10 games would you keep? Or, you know, the the geek list of, you know, cut your collection down to the most essential. This game makes it on my list every single time. I, I, I don't think there's ever been a scenario that anyone has thrown at me where I would ditch dominant species. Is this one that, you know, is a keeper for you as well, do you think? Oh yeah, for sure. I uh, when uh, I can't think of any other game that I like more. I, that's my only one that I've rated a ten out of all um, my other games. So yes, I would definitely always keep this game. Well, you know, I think that's a good sign. You know, not just because of uh, the two of us, of course, but because you know, I think there's a lot of people out there. I mean, if you look at when this game was released and its rating, which is hovering very close to eight, which is kind of this sort of uh, uh, on the board game geek rankings this sort of mythical number there's so few games that have a rating of eight or higher and and you know this is right there and you know, i remember when tom vassell it's funny because you know you mentioned him uh, at the very start of the show as being you know someone that you you listen to the review and i remember uh very distinctly uh, i'll probably be wrong and tom will tell me if i'm wrong but i seem to remember very distinctly tom saying that this, he felt, was not only one of the best games of the year, but he said it was like one of the best games of the decade. And when I heard him say that, you know, because I, I usually have the, the, the podcast on when I'm cleaning the kitchen. Um, you know, after dinner or something, I'll pop a podcast on. And I'll listen while I'm, you know, washing up and, and uh, you know, loading the dishwasher and cleaning the pots and whatever. And uh, w- when I heard him say that, um, it really got my attention. And, and I have to say that after playing the game, I really kind of am inclined to agree with him. There's very few games that I can think of that have come out in the last 10 years that I feel personally are as strong as this game. Um, So, you know, Dominant Species is one that I think is going to stand the test of time. I think you and I both agree on that. It's one that's never going to leave our collections. And, you know, Raquel, I want to thank you for joining me today on the show. I want to thank you once again very much for your generous donation to the Jack Vassal Memorial Fund. And I would encourage anybody who's not familiar with that to go to the Dice Tower Network or to the Dice Tower homepage and take a look and read more about it because it's a wonderful foundation that 
helps out gamers and uh, their families and people who are in need. And um, I think it's just a great cause and a, and a great thing that Tom does. So, Raquel, thank you very much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you. Not a problem at all, and we'd love to have you back sometime uh, to talk perhaps about another game. So uh, for Raquel Bites and myself, I want to say thank you very much to everyone out there for listening, and have a great night.